Well, last week, folks, Paul talked to us about philosophy, or maybe more accurately, philosophies. That is, the ideas that tend to govern the way that we as human beings think and speak and act and live. And this week, he'll dive even further down into that topic. Now, last week, I also started by telling you a joke about a philosopher, but this week, I'm going to tell you a story from a philosopher. And I'm sure many of you have heard of the Greek philosopher Plato and his allegory of the cave. This so-called allegory was an illustration that Plato used to, to illustrate the point of and the importance of education. So let me share it with you this morning. Now imagine, if you will, in this scenario, there are a group of people who have been chained to a cave wall their entire lives. All they know about existence is in the interior of that cave. And all they can do is look straight ahead at the cave wall in front of them. Now behind them, there is a small opening that does let in light. And throughout the day, people will pass by this cave and they talk and they dance and they play and they sing. And they cast shadows that project themselves Uh, onto the opposite of this cave wall. And sounds bounce off this cave wall. And the people chained to the opposite side of the cave watch these shadows dance. They hear these sounds bounce around and clash. And to them, these shadows are reality. They're all they know. So the people in the cave give names to these shadows. They, they, They come up with stories and meaning about them because that's all of the world they know. Now Plato says that the educated, the educated person, or the philosopher, as he puts it, is the person who was once chained to this cave wall, but through the, the, the freeing power of education, now has those chains fall away and can exit the cave and see the wider world And he's the person that is able to go out into the bright sun and see the people and and, and the the, the things that were casting the, the shadows against the interior cave wall. In other words, this person who once thought these shadows were the reality now sees what the reality, the thing with substance and meaning actually is. It's these things out in the world and the shadows are only projections of a truer and more beautiful and more complex reality. Now, many Christian teachers throughout history have, and I'm not the first one to use this illustration, have pointed out how Plato's allegory is actually a a pretty good illustration of what happens to the Christian when they come alive in Christ. See, Jesus is the substance of reality. All the things that we thought we knew about the world are simply shadows of Him. And He, when when we see Jesus for who He is, He dispels the sort of shadowy superstitions that we've seen projected throughout our life. And what Paul has been telling us all along, ironically, is that even people like Plato and even Plato's philosophy are a part of this shadowy world. See, there's a lot of teachers and orators and people out there that can deceive us with their charm and charisma and creativity and and intellect. 
Because they all claim to have the secret key to a successful life, the key to happiness, when in reality, more often than not, it's just more of the same. These are shadow puppets, as C.S. Lewis called the Shadowlands, our, our fallen world that's distorted with all its fears and its griefs. But the good news of Jesus is this. While there are countless systems and traditions and precepts and religions and philosophies out there, all of which tell us that we should eat this way or follow this habit or practice this meditation or invest in this stock or live in this neighborhood or own this object, all of these things that tell us that we have to do something or become somebody so that we can find love and meaning and purpose in this life, the reality is that in Jesus alone do we find ourselves already loved and accepted and given all of our meaning. See, last week Paul showed us that the most strict religious rites and the most decadent pagan rituals are really just empty deceits. They're shadows. And they masquerade in our world around as philosophy or even worse, as wisdom. See, human traditions and elemental spirits are the same unless they find their grounding and center and the Lord Jesus Christ, they have no power, ultimately. They have no authority over us. Paul tells us that true wisdom is this. Here's what true philosophy is, Christian. It looks like God the Son, who is infinite and eternal, who is all-powerful and all-wise, putting on human flesh and the person and the body of Jesus Christ. It looks like that Jesus living a sinless and loving life for the sake of others and then being crucified by that same crowd hatefully on a cross. To the outside world, to the Jewish rabbis and the Gentile philosophers, this looks like utter defeat. Somebody coming and humbling themselves and being killed by the people they came to save. That looks like foolishness. But in reality, what Jesus accomplished when He dies on the cross is that He defeated death. That He conquered and canceled sin. That He harrowed hell. That He demolishes all the temporary authority of human government and demonic powers by His cross then to really seal the deal. He rose victorious from the tomb. He ascended back into the eternal presence of God the Father. And when He did this, He made a way for us, all repenting sinners, no matter what we've said or what we've believed or done, that we can be forgiven and that we can be invited as a family member now to have a seat at God's own dinner table forever. That's what true wisdom is. That's what true philosophy is. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. But the reality of the shadowy world, both then and now in which we live, is that this good news becomes distorted and hidden and people don't want to hear it or receive it or believe it. Because the shadow world has warped us all in ways that we, we don't see ourselves for who we really are anymore. 
We don't see our, 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 our flaws and foibles and our sins. We don't see ourselves as cosmic traitors against the one that made us. We don't see ourselves as, uh, as people that are spiritually dead. We see ourselves as people that just need a little cash injection, a, a, a little moral tune-up, and we'll be fine which is why we end up embracing all these vain teachings and philosophies that tell us if we just expend a little effort, then we're okay. We can save ourselves. We'll be fine. But Paul is is here to help us work through all of this and to sort through all of the mess that is the Shadowlands. So let's look at these first four verses, verse 16 through 19. In verse 16, Paul encourages us all to remember one simple thing. That Jesus is our center. That Jesus is our reality. And because this is true, we shouldn't let anyone bother us by passing judgments when it comes to what we eat or drink or what days we worship. See, the Colossian Christians were still encountering Jewish folks who were clinging to the laws of Moses as the exclusive way to live faithfully before God. And this, remember, is a, like us, is a largely Gentile church. These people didn't grow up under the customs and laws of Judaism. So were they really expected? And in turn, are we expected as Jewish, uh, as as non-Jewish people to keep these kosher laws, to keep these festival celebrations, even though we're in a largely Gentile community? Is that what we need to do? Do we need to cling to Jewish traditions in order to fully honor Christ? No. Why not? Well, first of all, we get in the middle of Acts that the first ever council of of bishops and pastors when the apostles met together and they were debating this, whether Gentiles needed to conform to Jewish standards of life in order to be faithful to Jesus. And Peter, uh, (laughs) the first pope, allegedly, Peter said something that was so helpful to us. He said, brothers, let's be real. We couldn't keep this on our best days. We couldn't do it. This is who we are. We're Jewish. We're good old Jewish boys, and we couldn't do this. Why would we make the Gentiles do something that we couldn't do? He showed some wisdom there. But it's not because Peter says we didn't have to do it that we don't have to do it. Because what Paul is getting here, Paul is getting at here, is that the reason why we don't have to observe any particular festival or keep any dietary restriction is because Jesus is the fulfillment of all those laws. He's the substance of those customs. See, Jesus is the reality. Passover and kosher and Sabbath, those things were good, but they were shadows of a greater reality that is Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. So let's take the two examples we find here and let's talk about them. Paul tells Colossians 
not to let anyone pressure them, especially as Gentile, non-Jewish believers, to keep kosher or to observe Passover or atonement or the, the, the Feast of Booths or anything like that. Why not? Were those things bad? Is that what Paul is saying? That these things are, are not good? No, that's not what he's saying at all. If we go back to Romans 7, Paul answers this question for another predominantly Gentile church, the church in Rome. He's talking to them about these things, and in chapter 7, verse 7, he says this, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not! But I would have not known sin if it were not for the law. So he's getting at the purpose of what God gave Israel the law for. In other words, the law that was handed down to Moses, this code of ethics and morality by which Israel should live, revealed how good and true and beautiful God is. That was the point of the law, to reveal God's character and nature to people that had been blinded by sin, that were ignorant of the true God that created this world. The law was given to Israel so that they could see who God was. It was not given to Israel as a means by which they could save themselves. That was not the reason the law was given. Paul says again in verse 12, starting in verse 12 of Romans 7, So then the law is holy. It's good. The law is good. And the commandments are holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Is the law the thing that killed me? Is the law the thing that is, it destroys us? Or, does Paul say, absolutely not. It's sin that destroys us. See, sin is the thing that's revealed by the law. In order to be recognized as sin, that was the thing producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become obviously sinful beyond measure. See, that's what the law does. That's what these commandments of God are supposed to do. Show us how desperately sinful we really are. Even if we wanted to keep these things, we are so bent and warped by sin, our mind, our will, our desires are twisted beyond our ability to repair them. So that even if we wanted to live completely holy before God, we're incapable of doing it. So for the Israelites in covenant with God, the reality is when God told them to eat, eat a certain way, it wasn't so they could be saved. Now there was wisdom in that. They didn't eat certain things that typically were not as hygienic. God did show some natural wisdom to them in that, but it wasn't so that they uh, might not get sick as often. It wasn't so that they might not, um, or that they might earn their way into God's good graces. No, God gave that to them to reveal something about God's self to them, that He is holy. And His intention for Israel was to be unique, to not be like all the other nations. The way they ate showed that they were reliant on God and His goodness as their sustenance. But what about, say, a Sabbath day or, or a festival? 
What are those about? Again, these weren't given so that Israel could save themselves. These were given to reveal something about God's goodness to Israel. That is to say, His intention was for Israel to find rest in Him. To celebrate what He's done in Israel's life. Do you see what the the, the intention of the law was to do? It was to show Israel who God is. What God does. That their life and salvation and future and their forgiveness is in Him alone. The law was supposed to orient them around life with a holy God. The purpose of the law has always been to reveal who God is to sinful and lost and wayward people. So guess what happens when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, comes into the world? See, now something has to be done about this. But Jesus Himself says, did I show up to abolish or get rid of the law? No! I came to fulfill it. See, the shadows of God's truth and goodness and beauty as contained in the Mosaic Law has been outshined and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He's the reality to which those things were pointing all along. Those were the shadows cast on the wall. And Jesus is the light that shines out in the real world. God Himself living with and for His people. See, folks, Jesus is our real kosher meal. He's our real Passover lamb because He offered up His own flesh and blood on the cross for us sinners. And now we do partake in a Passover meal. Now we do partake in kosher when we come to this Lord's Supper table, participating in the reality of His cross, being drawn upward into His presence. And Jesus is our real festival observances and our Sabbath rest because it's only Jesus that we now celebrate and it's only in Him that we find rest for our weary hearts. As a congregation, we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly because it's here where we encounter God's goodness and His presence at the worst moment in history. His death on a cross, He invites us in to the redemptive reality of that. This is a mystery that we can't wrap our minds around. That when He died for our sins, He invites us into what that accomplishes for us. So when we come together and partake in this Lord's Supper, we partake in His sacrificial death for us. Whatever spiritually that means. I think, you know, the old word, we as Baptists use ordinance because the Lord ordained it, and that's good. But the the older word that's used for the Lord's Supper, sacrament, I like that word because sacrament just means a mystery. And when we come to this table, that God became man and died on a cross, and now we participate in his death for life, that is a mystery. Who can wrap their minds around this? This is a sacrament for us. And as a church, as a congregation, we also observe, at the very least, two major Christian festivals, Christmas and Easter. At the very least, we observe that. 
Not, and, and also every Sunday is its own resurre- small resurrection day in its own way. And we do these things not because we just like trees with electric lights or we like baskets full of candies and sweets, but we do these things because we're celebrating Jesus. We're celebrating His incarnation, His being born into a human body to live life with us. We celebrate His death and resurrection so that we might be raised and made new one day. See, all of what we do as a church, whether it's the preaching or the praying or the fellowship or the worship or the witness or the ordinances or, or, or the, the Scripture reading or any of this stuff, all of it is about Jesus who He is, and what He's done for us. This is why Paul tells us in verse 17 that those things, the kosher foods, the Jewish festivals, are good, but ultimately they're just shadows. And the substance, the reality, the eternality belongs to the person of Jesus. So don't let anyone disqualify you in this life by insisting on asceticism, Paul says. Now what's that? It's, it's a meaning of, it's a strict observance of diet. It's a rigorous um, spiritual routine. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a shortened sleep schedule. It's this physical uh, exertion, spiritual exertion, denying yourself of any sort of physical comforts so you can focus on spiritual life. Don't let anybody insist to you that you have to be ascetic to worship God properly. Now that might be a holy way for you to worship the Lord. Something I think we need to recover is a, is a theology of fasting and praying. That doesn't come easy to Americans and certainly not to Baptists. But there is a sense in which self-denial can be a good and holy thing. Where we put aside the comforts of this world to focus on the Lord. That can be a good thing, but by no means let anybody tell you you have to follow this regiment to get God to love you. And on the other hand, don't let anybody insist that you can worship any lower entity or spiritual being whether it's angels or demons or the psychedelic visions they conjure up or the man-made gods that we have. Money, power, status, fame, comfort, pleasure. Don't let anybody tell you that chasing after those things will fulfill you in Jesus Christ either. See, the reality of this is, and it cuts against every one of us here, you can be a totally straight-edge person. You could have never smoked, or drank, or cussed, or gambled, or fought, or had any other vice. Or you could be absolutely out of control, it seems. You could be praying to every god, and angel, and spirit, and and working yourself up into a frenzy with controlled substances, throwing down tarot cards, lighting incense, having seances, and both extremes are nonsense because they don't have Jesus as their center. They may have a lot of spirituality. They may have a lot of mystery. But they don't have Jesus, so they don't have anything. Now folks, if we're being honest, when we read 
some of this stuff. It just doesn't seem to apply to us like it used to. But the, 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 the inclination of the human spirit is the same as it's ever been. You know, Solomon said that there is nothing truly new under the sun. And so we'll see cycles and trends and things that we think are bygone come back and pop up. One of the things that we've tricked ourselves in the American West is we think, oh, well, we have electricity and and internet now, so we're not superstitious people anymore. You know, when I worked at uh, Apple, and here's a company that's a a trillion-dollar company leading the edge of, of, of technology. Do you know how many people I worked with that were totally, totally bought in to that because they were born under a certain astrological sign, they shouldn't be friends with another person. Here are the most educated, most tech-savvy people on the planet, and they have the superstitions of a medieval peasant. We have tricked ourselves to think if we've gotten away from that at all. Go out and talk to anybody on the street. The superstitions they have, you wouldn't believe it. And now during football season oh, I've got to wear this unwashed jersey or Georgia's not going to be able to pull it out. People really think like that. Folks, we may not in our context be tempted to, like the Colossians, pray to any angels or spirits. But you don't know in some of the major periodicals, New York Times, The Atlantic, Recently, I've read how things like astrology and witchcraft and just plain old-fashioned paganism are on the rise in America again. People are, 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 are feeling a spiritual pull. I think we think that we're growing more atheistic as a culture. I think we're just growing more pagan. We're going back and worshiping the old gods, having the old superstitions, praying to the old spirits with all of the progress we've made as a society we seem to be retreating into our most primal selves so even though we aren't tempted towards these things in particular you're kidding yourself if you don't think those things have an influence in the life of people that you know Now, we might feel proud. We're not going to be deceived by that stuff. But folks, let's be honest about what we do struggle with as evangelicals. We're religious people. And so inherently, we struggle with some form of legalism. We make up rules about who God is and how we should respond to Him. So we'll judge each other in churches if we're, oh, that person's a Calvinist. Oh, that person's an Arminian. Oh, they're post-millennial. Oh, they're pre-millennial. All this stuff. Oh, they go to a church that does these kind of worship songs. Oh, they go to a church that does these boring old traditional hymns. We'll jump down each other's throats and judge each other for what we bring to the church, how often we're involved, in what ways we volunteer, how presentable we are, what clothing we wear, if we have piercings or tattoos, or we have an enthusiasm or lack thereof in worship, or or how much the Bible we have memorized, how many uh, uh, things that we contribute to. See, we'll come up with just as many superstitions in the church as we 
look down our nose at all the pagans out there. As religious people, we'll, we'll think that uh, these, uh, we'll invest in trinkets and think they have some sort of sacramental power. We're pagans just like them. We just put a Christian veneer on it. And we'll deceive ourselves one way or in the other that these completely man-made standards are how we win God over. Somehow we'll find a way. We'll find some way in which we can present ourselves as more holy than our neighbor. Oh, well, I'm a better parent than they are. Oh, well, I actually have read my devotionals today. We'll find some arbitrary way to lift ourselves up and act like we're any better than our pagan friends out there. Paul's whole point in, in this passage is this. You can be a full-blown pagan or a full-on Pharisee, and both of those things are equally anti-Jesus and anti-Gospel. Because your solution for, uh, for your life is yourself, is what you can do, is what you can achieve. Folks, the reality is our only hope before God is Jesus Christ. What He's done for us, who He now is and always has been for us, not what we can do for Him. Or as Paul calls him in, in verse 19, he is the head of the body. And just like our own head is the source uh, uh, of all of our body's function and well-being. If you don't have a functioning brain, it doesn't matter if everything else here is perfect. This is the control center. Your head is, the, is where you eat. This is where you consume the nourishment. This is where you take in the air. This is where you can hear things, where you can see things, where you can think about things. That is the source of your life. And if it's cut off, it doesn't matter how strong and vital. It doesn't matter if you have an Arnold Schwarzenegger in the predator body when he was at his, his most maxed out and his strongest and his most masculine. If his head came off, his body would stop working. The life of the church isn't determined by how strong we think we are, how polite we think we are, how rarely we've missed a service, how much time we've spent volunteering, whatever religious rituals we've done. Our health isn't determined by what we do. Our health is determined by our source, our head that gives us life and nourishment. The life and well-being of our church this morning is not determined by any one of us. Me most of all. It's determined by Jesus Christ and His infinite love for us and mercy on sinners like us. Paul says, in this Jesus, in Him are we alive and do we find life. But that's just the beginning of our story. Because before we were made alive in Christ as the body, we first had to die to our old selves with Him. Paul tells us in verse 20 that the elemental spirits and beliefs and practices of the world, the mystical regulations and superstitions we once submitted to have no power over us. 
The philosophers of Colossae were trying to tell the Colossian church that they had to restrict their diet, that they had to exercise a certain way, that they had to live their life in a very particular way to obtain God. And there was a term for that in Paul's day, and it was Gnosticism. See, Gnosticism is a, is a wide umbrella category that you can put a lot of different philosophies into. It always has to do with the, the uh, mysterious and secretive ways that we, and, and, and elite ways that we can obtain God and His favor. See, today, practical Gnosticism markets and manifests itself in all kinds of ways. It shows up in various diet trends that tell us unless you're eating this certain way, you'll never have a good quality of life. It shows up in our big tech corporations that try to convince us that living a life online or with this convenience is somehow a substitute for real flesh and blood friendship. Real conversations face-to-face. Real church with real and flawed people. It shows up in our political ideologies that tell us if we don't vote for this person or that one, then we won't realize our potential as a society. But I like what the Baptist sociologist George Yancey recently said very wisely. He said, if whoever's in the White House causes you to think either we're doomed or we're saved, then you're already in trouble. Because our Jesus holds the future and no one else. Gnosticism always tells us that there is a secret, mysterious path to righteousness. That there is a... uh, 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 That the human body and real community don't matter. It's all about what you know and, and what groups you can be a part of. And it tells you that Only a select few people are worthy to carry these secrets. All the, my goodness, I I, I think the compunction in our society to all of a sudden believe every conspiracy theory that comes out of the woodwork is because we're Gnostics that think, if if I really know this is the way things are, that I'm better than everybody out there. You don't want to believe this revealed truth that's right here and plain and open for you. You want to go down some crazy wackadoo website and say, well, let me tell you how this is, this is what's really going on in Washington. Let me tell you this. None of us know what's going on in this world. None of us. We don't know what's going on in China or Washington or India. We don't know what's going on anywhere. You're lying to yourself if you think you do. Because you think, oh, I have this, this secret knowledge. I'm better than people. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to see. Don't let anybody tell you that, oh, I have this website. I have this trend. I have this health routine. I have this product. And this will change your life. Nonsense. Jesus will change your life. Only Him. Everything else is shadows. That's what Paul is combating in verses 21 through 22. These things have the appearance of wisdom. They look smart. They look alluring. And that's the problem because they promise us the answers to life and we believe them instead of believing Jesus. But at the end of the day, they're always the same thing. Empty, self-made religion that doesn't 
curb our self-indulgence, that doesn't stop any of our problems. They're shadows and a shadow land. Whenever a problem arises in our life, the world will tell us to know this secret, to follow this routine, to seek this vision, and they'll try to convince us for to look for some mystery or secret in the universe or out there in the culture and to buy into some magical way of thinking and living. And they put it on our shoulders to deliver us from our problems. Well, let me ask you, how is that working out for the world? Have we been able to collaborate together to save ourselves? We've had a brand new disease that's ravaged this world. You ask uh, Sam Thomas how Hope Givers is doing with coronavirus. The tragedy of having to bury their pastors and pastors' wives and ministers and teachers. We can't even get on the same page about that. We fight each other over this stuff. Well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And we think we have the power to save ourselves? We could have all come together about this disease and tried to collaborate, but we've been too busy conspiring against each other with this stuff. And we think we can save ourselves? Get real. What? Well, anything about... Look at anything that's happening in this world, and you're crazy if you think there's a secret human path to salvation. We've had an obvious threat that if we would have maybe cared about one another and put in some effort to to be humble, we could have curbed what we said, my way. I don't care about this person down the street. I'm not going to be inconvenienced. We're lying to ourselves. We are lying to ourselves if we think we can do anything to save not only our soul, but even our own body. But here's the surprising and paradoxical and life-giving gospel. You don't have to do or be anything you can't do or be because Jesus has accomplished the impossible for you from His cross and His empty tomb. That's where you find life and salvation. I think of so often when Jesus told His disciples that it's more likely that you could squeeze a giant camel through a little needle head than for a rich and powerful person to get into heaven. That blindsided them. They thought, well, the the priests and 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 the princes, those are... Those are the people that are favored by God, are they not? That's why they have all this status. So they look at each other baffled. They said, then who can be saved? And Jesus let them know the answer right there. With you, any of you, poor or rich, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Only Jesus can save us. Not our status, not our wealth, not our knowledge, not our routines. It's impossible with us. But Jesus has walked into our impossibility 
He's walked through our shadow lands with all its smoke and mirrors and lies and deceit, with all its demons and principalities and powers. And by the blood of His cross, He has freed us from that dark cave wall where we were chained up. And unlike Plato, He doesn't ask you to be brilliant or educated, to be remarkable or to be rich. Unlike any world religion, He doesn't ask you to be completely free of sin and a moral exemplar. And unlike any American lifestyle trend, He doesn't ask you to eat better, sleep more, exercise more often, be a better spouse, be a better parent, work harder, get richer, win friends or influence people. He says, it is finished. Turn and believe in this good news from me for you. Let's pray. Father, give us true wisdom by the power of Your Spirit that we may not be taken captive by vain philosophies or empty deceits or elemental spirits or anything in this world that is not Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Help us to grow in grace through Him, the head of the body, the church. For in Jesus and Jesus alone do we now as the church finds salvation, and it's in His name that we now pray. Amen.